Well, hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, coming to you today from the Orange County Command Center. And if you've been listening to Catholic radio, Catholic podcasts, um, general Catholic media for the last week or so, you know that it is June, and June is the uh, month of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And so you've probably heard about St. Margaret Mary Alacoque and the 12 Promises of the Sacred Heart and so on. And we'll be touching on that later but also going to be looking at some lesser-known facts about devotion to the Sacred Heart. Also, many Catholics are happy to hear that uh, some of the U.S. bishops are finally addressing the sacrilegious communions of pro-abortion politicians, but uh, some other Catholics just don't see what the big deal is, and that is what we call spiritual indifference, and that's something else we're going to talk about today, because it's a real issue in the Church, and uh, that'll also give us an opportunity to talk a, a bit about the gospel for Pentecost Sunday. And speaking of Pentecost Sunday, and <laughs> I promise I'll get around to how this is, uh, connects to Pentecost Sunday, I wonder if you've seen the internet meme, which recounts an imaginary but uh, all too accurate, I'm afraid, dialogue between a worldly person and the Catholic Church. A worldly person says, I want to do X. The Catholic Church replies, you're free to do it. The worldly person says, but you think X is wrong. Catholic Church replies, yes. The worldly person says, because you want to control me. Catholic Church says, no, you're free to do what you want. And then the worldly person says, but you think X is wrong. And the Catholic Church says, and you're free to do it, right? I, I only think it's wrong because I, I desire your ultimate good. And a worldly person says, but I want to do X. The Catholic Church says, you're free to do it. And then the worldly person says, but I want you to say X is good. The Catholic Church replies, I cannot say that. And the worldly person says, why do you hate me? <laughs> See, this is every conversation between the world and the church for 2,000 years, and it'd be funnier if it didn't ring true. John 3.16, Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may attain eternal life. Now, obviously, following Jesus Christ, the church does not hate the world. Rather, the opposite is true. Jesus said in John 15, If the world hates you, realize that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own, but you do not belong to the world because I have chosen you out of the world, and therefore the world hates you. And we saw manifestations of this hatred on Pentecost Sunday. A Catholic news agency reported an incident that took place at Joel Austin's Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas. According to CNA, pro-abortion activists disrupted Joel Austin's Pentecost sermon, stripping down to their undergarments and shouting expletives and pro-abortion slogans before they were escorted out of the building. Um, videos of the incident were posted on Twitter, and the latest in a, the latest in the series of a pro-abortion demonstrations, quote-unquote, targeting churches in recent weeks and pregnancy centers. And it's in response to the Supreme Court's leaked opinion from last month that suggested that the court is poised to overturn Roe versus Wade, which is the 1973 decision that legalized abortion nationwide just in case you've been living on Mars for the last 49 years. Now, we've seen plenty of protests, quote-unquote, 
in the form of uh, sacrilege and, and criminal vandalization of uh, Catholic churches around the country, including desecration of the Blessed Sacrament and the theft of more than one tabernacle. Uh, and for example, in the wee hours of yesterday morning, a pro-life pregnancy center in Asheville, North Carolina, had its windows smashed and its walls defaced with red spray-painted messages that included no forced birth. <laughs> and if abortions aren't safe, neither are you. Now, it's a common pro-abortion argument that pro-life people really only care about the baby when it's in the womb, that, uh, that we don't care about the woman at all or, or what happens to her baby after she gives birth. Crisis pregnancy centers are the proof, that's the, the smoking gun, that this is an outrageously absurd and vicious lie. But now the pro-abortion extremists are actually threatening the people who are supporting the women and their babies. See, apparently the right to choose only includes the choice to kill the baby. And uh, the Asheville police are treating this as a mere act of vandalism, but it's really an act of terrorism. Surely if anything ever fell under quote-unquote hate speech, this is it, but uh, I won't hold my breath. Anyway, back to the incident at Joel Osteen's Pentecost service. Uh, a young lady, 21-year-old Julianne Deredita, told the Catholic News Agency on Sunday that she led a group of 13 activists on behalf of a, uh, a local affiliate of the extremist group Rise Up for Abortion Rights. Now, according to CNA, Quote, while Osteen, or Osteen has expressed pro-life views in the past, the abortion issue does not play a prominent role in his ministry. So why target him? Well, the agitators said that they chose Osteen's evangelical and non-denominational megachurch because it broadcasts to millions of viewers around the world. Now, their own videos that they posted on Twitter show Osteen starting his sermon for the 11 uh, a.m. Pentecost Sunday service. And as the congregation sits down, a woman stands up and pulls off her dress. And then wearing only her underwear, she starts shouting obscenities and, and pro-abortion slogans. Now, two other women proceeded to do the same. And they were almost immediately met by security who escorted them out of the building as they continued uh, shouting. But here's the good part. After the shouting began, Osteen told the congregation and we'll wait just one moment here, but God is good, and he's on the throne, and he's in control, which is exactly the correct way to respond. The congregation cheered, naturally, and, and cheered louder when Austin said, so we'll just take one moment here, and we'll get started. But I know this, I'm glad to be in the house of the Lord with people of faith. So thank you, Lord, for a good service. And then over the continued shouts of the quote-unquote protesters, he said, all right, y'all, we love everybody, so we just thank the Lord that he's in control and has all things in his hand, and I think as long as I keep talking, you can't hear what everybody else is saying. Now, the Catholic News Agency article concludes, Lakewood Church did not respond to CNA's request for comment by time of publication. And as far as I know, Lakewood Church has still not made any comment. And perhaps this is as it should be. You know, all the pro-murder people want is attention, so why give them any more? And i got to say, as a Catholic, I obviously don't agree with all of Mr. Austin's theology. Uh, in particular, I'm not an advocate of the prosperity gospel that they preach over at Lakewood Church. However, 
Pastor Austin's response to this infantile display was definitely an authentically Christian one. He thanked the Lord, he acknowledged uh, his sovereignty, and he expressed love for those who were insulting and persecuting him. Now, the other widely reported incident this Pentecost Sunday was far more serious and far more violent and took place at St. Francis Xavier Catholic Church in the town of Owo in the state of Ondo, Nigeria. Gunmen who killed at least 50 people opened fire on Catholic worshipers both inside and outside the church in a coordinated attack in which they also detonated explosives before escaping the scene. Now, no one, uh, to my knowledge, has yet claimed responsibility for the church killings, in which uh, many children were among the dead. The governor of Ondo tweeted, I am deeply saddened by the unprovoked attack and killing of innocent people of Owo, worshipping at the St. Francis Catholic Church today. This vile and satanic attack is a calculated assault on the peace-loving people of Owo Kingdom, who have enjoyed relative peace over the years. And the Vatican released a statement on Sunday that said, The Pope learned of the attack on the church in Ondo, Nigeria, and the death of dozens of faithful, many children, during the celebration of Pentecost. While the deaths of details of the incident are being clarified, Pope Francis prays for the victims and for the country, painfully affected in a moment of celebration, and entrusts both to the Lord to send his spirit to comfort them. And then on Monday, uh, a papal telegram was sent to the Bishop of Ondo by um, the Vatican Secretary of State, Cardinal uh, Pietro Perilin. And it said, His Holiness Pope Francis was deeply saddened to learn of the horrific attack at St. Francis Church in Owo, and he assures you and all those affected by this act of unspeakable violence of his spiritual closeness. In commending the souls of the dead to the loving mercy of Almighty God, and imploring divine healing and consolation upon the injured and those who are grieving, His Holiness prays for the conversion of those blinded by hatred and violence, so that they will choose instead the path of peace and righteousness. Upon you and the faithful of the diocese, Pope Francis invokes the divine blessings of comfort and strength as you continue to live the gospel message with fidelity and courage. And once again, this time from the Pope, we see that the Christian response, even to violent persecution, is to pray for the innocent victims and their families, but also for the conversion of the perpetrators. Following our Lord's injunction, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But I think it's fair to ask, why, why does the world hate and persecute us? The answer is the world hates Christians in general, and Catholics in particular, because our values differ so, di such, so much from the world's values. And because Christ's followers don't cooperate with the world by uh, joining in their sin, we become living reminders of the world's immorality. Our very existence is an indictment of them and is intolerable to them because the world follows the devil's agenda and is the avowed enemy of Jesus and his people. And that's no nonsense. Okay, going to wrap this up and back with lots more right after these words here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We were talking about uh, persecution of Christians uh, in the from the world, and um, just to wrap up, I was going to mention that church leaders have been warning us that um, persecutions are likely to get worse. In fact, I just uh, saw on my cell phone during the break that uh, an, an armed abortion activist was just arrested. Uh, after arriving in in Washington D.C. in with the intent to murder Justice Kavanaugh, so it, it continues. Uh, I guess the point I've been trying to make is that it's necessary now more than ever that we take to heart the words of Jesus: that in the world you will endure suffering, but take courage. I have overcome the world. And he said, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and utter all kinds of calumnies against you for my sake. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward will be great in heaven. And let's remember that he said, a servant is not greater than his master. And if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. Love and hate. It actually uh, ties into our next topic. We, We just passed through the Easter season which began on Easter Sunday and concluded with the Feast of Pentecost. Easter is that time of the liturgical year when catechumens and candidates receive the sacrament of uh, baptism and First Holy Communion, and of course, the sacrament of confirmation. Just this last Pentecost Sunday, we had um, adult Catholics who had never been confirmed receive their confirmations at, at our parish. And uh, my old St. Joseph catechism lists the sacramental effects of confirmation. There's four effects, but number one is that confirmation produces the indelible mark or character that identifies the servant and soldier of Christ. And why soldier? Because living an authentic Christian life is a warfare. And that's why the faithful on earth are called the church militant, because we're fighting the good fight against the big three enemies of the soul, namely the world, the flesh, and the devil. Remember, Christ, our God so loved the world that he sent his only son, but that doesn't mean that the the world loves us, obviously, that we've just been talking about that. But that, you know, the world is an enemy of the soul, but we remember that we must love our enemies. So, you know, there are those Christians, though, that that tire of the battle, or and I think there's a good number of them never show up for the battle in the first place, and instead they they grow cold and they fall into what we call spiritual indifference. Now, what am I talking about? Well, let's start with what spiritual indifference is not. Spiritual indifference is not religious indifference. Religious indifference holds that it really doesn't matter what religion you are, because all religions are more or less equally true. Uh, that's that's religious indifference. Spiritual indifference is, is something else. And spiritual indifference is also not heresy or apostasy. To be spiritually indifferent doesn't require rejecting some or all of the faith, although it is that slippery slope that uh, can lead to apostasy. Uh, some of our separated brethren use the term backsliding which according to the dictionary means a lapse in morals or in religious practice. And that's getting warmer because those are certainly symptoms of spiritual indifference. But I think it's deeper than that, that at its root, spiritual indifference is to lose your fellowship with the Lord. So, for example, consider a Catholic who goes to Sunday Mass, okay, at least most Sundays, 
and always goes to communion in any case, but never goes to confession. Now, you and I know that to miss Sunday Mass without a grave reason is a mortal sin. And to receive communion in a state of mortal sin is another mortal sin. It's the sin of sacrilege. Now, the spiritually indifferent Catholic doesn't reject the Church's teaching about the Sunday obligation or the worthy reception of Holy Communion. He simply doesn't care. So what Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, does that mean that if you don't keep his commandments, that you hate him? No, because hate is not the opposite of love. The opposite of I love you is not I hate you. The opposite of I love you is I don't care. Indifference is the opposite of love. Apply that to the teaching of Christ and his church, and you have spiritual indifference. But uh, from whence does this spiritual indifference proceed? I'm, I think some Catholics or Christians are scandalized by the weakness and the inconsistencies of other Christians, especially Christian leaders, especially the Catholic hierarchy, for example. Catholic clergy scandals have been continually in the media for years, Catholic politicians routinely flaunt the teaching of the Church without any real consequence. Liturgical abuse is the norm at many parishes, and nothing ever seems to get done about it by any—nothing seems to get done about any of it by the only men who can do anything about it, uh, which are the bishops. So it's not all that surprising that some rank-and-file Catholics figure, if it doesn't matter to the bishops, why should it matter to me? And of course, some Catholics are just poorly catechized and therefore ignorant of their spiritual responsibilities, but that's different. It's like the old joke, a teacher asked a student, what's the difference between ignorance and apathy? And the student replied, I don't know, and I don't care. Right, so, so Nancy Pelosi, for example, knows the teaching of the church regarding abortion and rejects it. And I'm not guessing, she has, she's said as much and yet she still claims to be a devout Catholic. So technically, she's not spiritually indifferent. She's a heretic, right? The meaning of heresy is for a Catholic to obstinately reject a plain teaching of the Church and to refuse correction. Now, does that not describe the situation, or am I missing something? Now, the spiritually indifferent Catholic is different. The spiritually indifferent Catholic does not reject the Church's teaching. It just doesn't consider the spiritual implications of living as if they do. Because as we know, actions have consequences, and mortally sinful actions have eternal consequences. You know, sometimes I think the problem stems from the fact that, that many Catholics these days have been catechized, however poorly, and they've been sacramentalized, if you will, baptism, First Holy Communion, confirmation, however perfunctorily. But many, if not most, were never really evangelized. I think because, you know, Catholic Catholicism was culture for so many centuries, and the Catholic Church has its own culture, and, and, we, and we don't feel like we need to tell people who Jesus is, you know. And because they don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, which, again, the, the, the modern pontificates of Benedict XVI, John Paul II, for all as many years he was pope, they took great pains to talk about how the personal relationship with Jesus, that's not a Protestant thing, that's normative Catholicism. 
But because so many Catholics don't really have that relationship, they they pay no heed to the place that authentic worship and personal prayer and obedience to the revelation of God must hold in an authentically Christian life. And and quite naturally, this indifference leads inexorably to disobeying God's will, and, and then those willful sins go unconfessed. And this is such a precarious position. Our Lord says in, in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 16, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And this is easy to understand. Starbucks serves coffee. Uh, you know, they serve hot coffee. They serve iced coffee. But nobody asks for room temperature. And too many people want to have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. The, the, the reading at uh, Mass this morning was from the book of Kings where Ahab says, you know, are you for the Lord or not? You can't straddle the fence. And then Elijah takes on the, the 450 priests of Baal to demonstrate which God is the true God. Like straddling a fence. See, my silver heralded mother used to say that the only thing you get from straddling a fence is a sore backside. Okay, it's not a tenable position. Our good Lord says in Matthew 12 30, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. It is impossible to be Catholic and be neutral about the teaching of Christ. To try and remain neutral in the struggle between good and evil is choosing to be separated from God, who alone is good. Any Catholic who's not actively following him has de facto chosen to reject him. It's a sobering thought. But of course, the beautiful thing is that any such Catholic can seek forgiveness and restoration. And the Gospel for Pentecost Sunday recounts how Jesus gave the apostles the power to forgive sins on the evening of the first Easter. It says, the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them and whose sins you retain are retained. St. John was there when Jesus gave the apostles and their successors the powers to forgive sins in persona Christi, in the person of Christ. But John knew that this power was conferred by the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. In other words, when the beloved apostle who wrote this gospel, when, when he forgave sins, he knew that it was really Christ who was doing the forgiving. Same as when your priest uh, says the words of absolution when you go to confession. And so in, in his first epistle, in, in uh, 1 John 1, 9, this same St. John the Apostle says, if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all wrongdoing. So what must we do? to be forgiven, confess our sins. What does St. John say God will do when we confess? He will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all wrongdoing. You notice that twofold nature of this saying, forgive and cleanse. 
I knew a priest years ago who was invited on an evangelical talk show because of his, his pro-life work. And the host was a minister who said to him off the air, you know, we're really both the same. We're, we're both ordained ministers. We're both pastors of souls. We both preach the word and so on. And Father said, do you claim the power to absolve sins? And the fellow said, absolutely not. So Father said, then we're really not the same, are we? You know, I've often heard the question, why do I have to confess my sins to some man? Why can't I just go directly to God? Well, of course, you can and should go directly to God. You know, and if you make a, a, a perfect act of contrition, I detest all my sins because of your just punishments, but most of all, because they offend you, my God, who are all good and deserving of all my love, you can be certain that God will forgive you. Although you can't be quite as certain that your contrition is really perfect. I will talk about the, the second part of forgive and cleanse when we return. Also, coming up, the 12 promises of the Sacred Heart and little-known facts about the devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. So stay with us. We shall return shortly right here on Virgin, this powerful radio. Before the break, we were talking about uh, Christ uh, and the gospel for Pentecost Sunday, giving the apostles the power to forgive sins, and how St. John, who authored that gospel and was among those apostles, wrote in his first epistle, if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all wrongdoing. And I talked about how, you know, people ask, can't you just go directly to God? Why do you have to go to a man in confession? Well, of course, you can go directly to God. You make a perfect act of contrition or an act of perfect contrition, if you prefer, and your sins are forgiven. Okay, you can be certain that you that God will forgive you if your contrition is perfect. Although, as I said, you can't necessarily uh, be as certain that your contrition is really perfect. But the point is that confession removes all doubt. And in the sacrament, our sins are not just forgiven, they're absolved. As St. John says in, in 1 John 1, 9, he will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all wrongdoing. Your, your, your sins are forgiven, your sins are, for, are absolved. So we know that even though there may still be some temporal punishment due for our sins, we've been relieved of the guilt of those sins. It's as though... Uh, you know, I mean, our, our guilt is is completely erased as though the sins had never happened. And we've been returned to a state of grace. Or if we're already in a state of grace, then we receive an increase of sanctifying grace, which helps us to have the power to, to, to do what's right and to know what's right. Sin and indifference take us off the path to peace and joy, and confession puts us back on the path. And that's why part of the act of contrition is the firm purpose, sorry, firm purpose of amendment. I firmly resolve with the help of your grace to sin no more, to avoid the, the unnecessary occasions of sins. You know, that means we're committed to forsake any attachment to our sins, even the venial ones, and to make reparation and or restitution as much as is possible. You know, St. Paul says in Acts 24, 15 and 16, I hold that there will be a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked alike. Accordingly, I strive at all times to have a clear conscience before God and man. 
right? You're going to live forever, either in heaven or in hell. Therefore, it behooves you to have a good conscience, right? A clean, clean conscience. And after going to confession, the result is, is a renewed fellowship with God and the church. St. John says God is light, and if we claim that we have fellowship with him while we continue to live in darkness, then we're lying, and we do not live in the truth. However, if we live in the light as he himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. If you've been spiritually indifferent and and you want to be reconciled with Christ and his church, make an act of contrition and get to confession at your earliest opportunity. doesn't matter how long it's been. I talked to a man, I I recounted this story a couple of times before COVID hit. I was at confession, a fellow was there, hadn't been to confession in 40 years. He said, I don't know where to start. And I told him, just go in and tell me, tell the priest what you told me. It's been 40 years, you don't know where to start and he will help you. No more excuses. Get to confession. And then, having restored your fellowship with with God, with Christ and the church, resolve to remain in a state of grace. Be sure never to miss Mass through your own fault on Sundays and Holy Days. Pray every day. Read the scriptures every day. You can kill two birds with one stone by praying the Liturgy of the Hours or, or the Daily Mass readings, or better yet, go to Daily Mass. Believe it or not, that's normative Catholicism, and it was for centuries. And that's no nonsense. Okay. On to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. It is the month of June. And uh, we every June is dedicated to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. We have a Feast of the Sacred Heart. And the Feast of the Sacred Heart is a movable feast. That means um, it's not always celebrated on the same date. Rather, it is celebrated every year, 19 days after Pentecost. And since Pentecost is always on a Sunday... Feast of the Sacred Heart is always on a Friday. Now, there are that's what you probably know already about uh, this devotion, but there's some things that maybe you don't know. For one thing, um, it dates back at least to the 12th century. And everybody knows about uh, St. Margaret Mary Alacoque and in the 16th century and the apparitions of Jesus to her. But uh, although it's impossible to say exactly where or when the devotion originated, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, of course, and St. Gertrude the Great both promoted devotion to the heart of Jesus in the 12th century. There is a memorare to the Sacred Heart that follows the structure of St. Bernard's great prayer to Mary, which may be derivative. But we know that St. Gertrude composed the following prayer to the Sacred Heart of Jesus in the 12th century. Sanctity of the heart of Jesus, consecrate my heart. Providence of the heart of Jesus, watch over my heart. Unchangeableness of the heart of Jesus, strengthen my heart. Purity of the heart of Jesus, purify my heart. Obedience of the heart of Jesus, subjugate my heart. Amiability of the heart of Jesus, make thyself known to my heart. Divine attractions of the heart of Jesus, captivate my heart. Riches of the heart of Jesus, do ye suffice for my heart. Floods of grace and blessings that flow from the heart of Jesus inundate my heart. O heart of Jesus, be thou my joy, my peace, my repose in this world and the next. O heart of Jesus, adored in heaven, invoked on earth, feared in hell, 
reign over all hearts, reign throughout all ages, reign forever in celestial glory. Amen. Beautiful prayer. Um, that's St. Gertrude in the 12th century. Also, we know the uh, early Franciscans in the 12th century following the lead of, of their f founder. I'm sorry, Franciscans of 13th century, rather, following the lead of their founder, St. Francis Assisi, had a particular devotion to the wounds of Jesus. And this included that his heart pierced with a lance during the crucifixion. So that's another devotion to the heart of Jesus. Uh, speaking of the 13th century, the first hymn to the sacred heart of Jesus is from the 13th century. 13th century Norbertine, blessed Hermann Joseph, composed a hymn called, by its first words, Sumi Regis Cor Aveto, which means heart of the highest king, I greet you. St. Norbert himself was a spiritual friend of St. Bernard of Clairvaux, so it's likely that the Norbertine devotion to the Sacred Heart goes back to the century before this hymn was composed. So that clearly places devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus in the Middle Ages. Um, the feast, of course, was um, first celebrated in the 17th century, and it was St. John Eudes, who was the founder of the Congregation of Jesus and Mary, who wrote a set of prayers uh, for an office and a mass for the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And, and those prayers continued to be used as the feast spread throughout the world. And then in the 19th century, Pope Leo XIII honored him with the title, Author of the Liturgical Worship of the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Holy Heart of Mary. And there was a 19th century nun who sent letters to Pope Leo XIII requesting him to consecrate the world to the Sacred Heart. And he did. Blessed Mary of the Divine Heart, a nun of the Congregation of Our Lady of Charity of the Good Shepherd, claimed in the late 19th century to have experienced a number of visions of Jesus. And in one of the last ones, she said that Jesus told her to write letters to Pope Leo XIII asking him to consecrate the world to the Sacred Heart. And when Leo XIII received her first letter, he was skeptical, and, and he dismissed it. And then a few months later, she sent another one. And this time, she mentioned the Pope's ill health. She said that Christ had assured her that he would live until, at least until, he performed this consecration. And so a few months later, he promulgated an encyclical saying that the whole world would be consecrated to the Sacred Heart of Jesus a month later on Sunday, June the 11th, 1899. And Blessed Mary of the Divine Heart died three days, just three days before the consecration, which happened on um, June 8th, 1899, so three days before the 11th, um, which then be, was the Feast of the Sacred Heart. And Sacred Heart of Jesus is a Latin church thing, but even some of the Eastern Catholics have begun to take up the practice. Uh, it's controversial. Uh, some of the critics, you know, uh, call it a Latinization, right? That's what the Byzantine Christians call it when they think that Eastern Christianity is being unduly influenced by the traditions of the West. But uh, many Eastern Orthodox uh, Christians are uh, against the devotion uh, due to concerns that it could imply and, and heretical Christ, Christology, right? And in response to those criticisms, Pope Pius XII, back in 1956, said that the Sacred Heart is venerated only insofar as it belongs to the divine person of the Son of God, 
And so it is a legitimate devotion. He defended that against criticisms of the Orthodox. And hence, I, you know, that we see that uh, Byzantine Catholics have started to embrace the devotion. But uh, far more surprising is a, a story from December 2017, when the pastor of an evangelical megachurch led his congregation in Pope Leo XIII's prayer of consecration to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Uh, the story broke on Reddit, and you know, this is back in BC, that's before COVID, but I never got around to talking about it. But uh, a, a user, a Reddit user rather, reported that during a Friday night service in, in December of 2017, the pastor of New Life Church, which is an evangelical Protestant megachurch in Colorado Springs, led the congregation in the sign of the cross and the prayer of consecration to the sacred heart of Jesus. Quite unexpected. The Reddit user, who's a Catholic, explained that his mom, who's a Protestant and goes to New Life Church, uh, w was there and thought that prayer, she's, gosh, that prayer sounds Catholic. You know, and, and like many modern churches, uh, New Life Church has a big PowerPoint screens where they project the song lyrics and whatnot. And this fellow's mom took pictures of a few of the slides with different lines from this prayer. And sure enough, it was the prayer of consecration to the Sacred Heart of Jesus composed by Leo XIII in 1899. And it's also interesting, the design of the PowerPoint slides featured a picture of the statue of St. Peter in St. Peter's Square at the Vatican. Okay. I'm going to talk about this uh, a little bit more and on to the promises of the Sacred Heart of Jesus when we return right here on No Nonsense Catholic. You're listening to Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and we will return after these messages. So don't go anywhere. Okay, welcome back to New Nonsense Catholic. Before the break, we were talking about how New Life Church, the pastor at New Life Church back in December 2017, led the congregation in Pope Leo XIII's consecration uh, to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, including the sign of the cross. And um, New Life Church is self-described as a non-denominational, charismatic, evangelical megachurch. And I have not, you know, I, I ran across this item the other day when I was looking for uh, interesting things regarding the, the Feast of the Sacred Heart. And I, I hadn't been able to find any articles on what the thinking of a non-denominational, charismatic, evangelical megachurch pastor was in, you know, praying a Catholic prayer for a Catholic devotion in his non-denominational service. But I can't help but think it must have been a good thing, uh, especially considering what this particular ecclesial community has gone through. Uh, New Life Church was founded in 1984 by Pastor Ted Haggard, and it was in the news in the early 2000s over Pastor Haggard's admitted drug use and regular visits to a, oh, shall we say, a male escort. Right? He was also later accused of making unwanted advances towards a young man in his 20s who was a, a you know, congregant at the church. Now, after Ted Haggard stepped down, the church, you know, <clears throat> had to appoint a new senior pastor. They chose one Brady Boyd, who has since greatly expanded the church's reach. And New Life uh, Church currently has about 10,000 members. And no doubt consecrating the congregation to the Sacred Heart of Jesus was a step in the right direction. And I'm going to share with you, this is the full text of, of the prayer of consecration from Leo XIII. 
Most sweet Jesus, Redeemer of the human race, look down upon us humbly prostrate, prostrate, ah, prostrate before thine altar. We are thine and thine we wish to be, but to be more surely united with thee, behold, each one of us freely consecrates himself today to thy most sacred heart. Many indeed have never known thee. Many too, despising thy precepts, have rejected thee. Have mercy on them all, most merciful Jesus, and draw them to thy sacred heart. Be thou king, O Lord, not only of the faithful who have never forsaken thee, but also of the prodigal children who have abandoned thee. Grant that they may quickly return to thy father's house, lest they die of wretchedness and hunger. Be thou king of those who are deceived by erroneous opinions, or whom discord keeps aloof, and call them back to the harbor of truth and unity of faith, so that there may be but one flock and one shepherd. Be thou king of all those who are still involved in the darkness of idolatry or Islamism, and refuse not to draw them into the light and kingdom of God. Turn thine eyes of mercy towards the children of the race once thy chosen people. Of old they called down upon themselves the blood of the Savior. May it now descend on them a labor of redemption and of life. Grant, O Lord, to thy church assurance of freedom and immunity from harm. Give peace and order to all nations and make the earth resound from pole to pole with one cry. Praise be to the divine heart that wrought our salvation. To it be glory and honor forever. Amen. Sacred Heart of Jesus, have mercy on us. Can you imagine if all Christians in all churches were to begin praying that prayer in earnest? Every petition there is what is so sorely needed in our world today. All right. Now, devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, the the modern devotion, um, comes from revelations to St. Margaret Mary Alacoque, who was a nun of the Order of the Visitation of Holy Mary back in the um, 17th century. Appeared to her four times over a period of 18 months and uh, described the modern devotion. So that includes reception of the Eucharist on nine first Fridays, Eucharistic devotion on Thursdays, a uh, celebration of the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus in, in uh, 19 days after Pentecost. And after the, the final vision, uh, St. Margaret Mary reported everything that she'd seen to, to her priest, and he encouraged her to write an account, which she did. And her book was circulated throughout France and England and was very widely read. And Jesus uh, made at least 12 promises to her uh, how he would help those who honor his sacred heart. And she, she saw the visit of uh, vis- um, the vision of the sacred heart. And he says, the, f- the flames that come forth from his heart remind us of his burning love for us and his desire that we love him in return. The crown of thorns around his heart reminds us of the sacrifice uh, he made to make up for sin. Jesus said to her, look at this heart which has loved people so much and yet they do not want to love me in return. Through you, my divine heart wishes to spread its love everywhere on earth. And he made 12 promises. The first is, I will give to my faithful all the graces necessary for their state of life. So grace for daily living. Grace, of course, is the life of the soul. 
and it's what makes the soul holy and pleasing to God. And so Jesus pledges to give, you know, to our mind, uh, you know, light to the mind and strength to the will to do good and avoid evil in this promise. Second promise, I will bring peace to their homes, to those who display an image of the sacred heart in the home. He said to the apostles, you know, my peace is my farewell gift to you. My, my peace I give you. And here he promises to give peace to our families, to help us to keep from offending him by mortal sin and to live together in peace uh, here on earth so we can be united again in heaven and be with him forever. Uh, the third promise, I will comfort them in all their sufferings. Sacred Heart of Jesus knows how weak we are. And, and he invited us into his Sacred Heart when he said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will refresh you. Comfort in sufferings. Fourth promise, I will be their safe refuge against all the snares of their enemies in life and above all in death. The sacred heart of Jesus is our refuge against all the evils of this world, but above all at the hour of our death to help us fight bravely, right? As soldiers of Christ in the church militant against the devil and when the, the bad circumstances of the world try to keep us from loving him promises to remain close to us, especially at the hour of our death. The fifth promise, I'll bestow abundant blessings upon all their undertakings. Without Christ, we can do nothing. And so he promises his abundant blessings for our success in work, for all of our thoughts, words, and deeds, which we offer each day to the sacred heart of Jesus. The sixth promise, sinners will find in my heart the source and infinite ocean of mercy, which, of course, we talked about today, that he promises to forgive us if we confess our sins, and he'll have mercy on our families because we've displeased him, and we ask him that he would forgive us and keep us close to him for ourselves, our families, and the sinners of the whole world. The seventh promise, okay, so that was a promise for sinners. Now, in the seventh promise, he promises fervent souls shall mount to high perfection. We can't be holy without his grace. You know, um, to, he promises to help us. It's the Beatitudes, to be poor in spirit, to seek heavenly riches, to overcome anger with meekness, to, to seek comforts in my sorrows in his sacred heart, to hunger and thirst for, for holiness, righteousness, to love him with all our heart, to be merciful to our neighbor so that we can receive his forgiveness and to be pure of heart so we can be loved by him and be a peacemaker uh, by keeping peace with ourselves and with others, our family and friends to begin with, to be perfect as he is perfect. That's the promise he makes for fervent souls. The eighth promise, it goes from sinners to fervent souls to, um, wait a second, oh no, it's nine, never mind. The eighth promise, we'll get there. I will bless every, bless every home in which an image of my heart will be honored. Uh, and so, again, you know, every Catholic home should have an image of the Sacred Heart and the Immaculate Heart of Mary uh, and to fill our homes with peace and love and so that he will be the king of our souls and reign in our families. Now, the ninth promise, I, I mentioned he, he makes a promise to sinners. He makes a promise to the fervent. Now, maybe to the people we've been talking about earlier, he said in his ninth promise, tepid souls will become fervent. Right? 
it's important that we not neglect our soul and that we do all we can to save it, to, to get the, you know, to ask God for the grace to lead a good life. You know, he says, he who, who obeys the commandments has for me that he has, has for me is the man who loves me and he will be loved by my father and he will come to him and I will come to him and, and reveal ourselves to him and dwell with him. This is the promise for the tepid soul. The tenth promise is for our priests. I will give to priests the gift of touching the most hardened hearts. Our good Lord is our eternal high priest, and he pours out his graces, uh, the graces of his loving sacred heart on the priests to make them living images of him, to give them special grace to draw sinners to the sacred heart so that they can find forgiveness and salvation. We pray for his kingdom to come uh, and, and to come into the hearts of all people so that through the zealous work of truly saintly priests, they can find that restoration and reconciliation. And so we ask the blessing upon every priest, and especially upon every priest who has ever been good to you or your family, those who, who have, uh, you know, give, given you the sacraments, those who have baptized and, and given the First Holy Communion and, and Confirmation and married you and, and officiated at funerals, those priests are a part of your family, and, and you should remember them when you pray and <clears throat> remember this promise that our Lord made. The eleventh promise, those who promote this devotion shall have their names written in my heart, never to be effaced. And so all of us who honor the Sacred Heart are to become like his apostles, and make him known and loved, that his kingdom may come through our prayers and good example. And finally, the twelfth promise, to all those who receive communion on the first Friday of the month for nine consecutive months, I will grant the grace of final repentance, right? To persevere till the end, to be received into the kingdom. This is the reward for our devotion to the Sacred Heart, to be granted the grace to die in friendship with God and save our souls. And so we should try and receive communion worthily as often as possible, and especially on the first Fridays of nine consecutive months. Friday's coming up, first Friday, end of this week. See you at Mass. All right, thank you so much for being with us. Um, once again, here on No Nonsense Catholic, going to do it all again next week. Remember, the uh, men's conference is coming up in July. If you want to find out about VMPR, what we're doing, what we're up to, how to donate, Visit vmpr.org, download the uh, VMPR smartphone app, and until next time, thank you so very much for listening, and may God richly bless you and your family.